cultivated farms in Iowa. The subscriber offers a farm of 1,000 acres, well located near to railroad, within sight of stores, grist and sawmill, schoolhouse, post office, and church, on the state road. Two daily mail coaches, mostly well fenced. A snug new house and barn and over 200 acres under the plow for $15 an acre, the most of which can remain on bond and mortgage to suit the purchaser. Also, another farm adjoining, containing 1,000 acres, well fenced with very fine buildings, house, cheese house and factory, steam saw and grist mill, now being built with three run of stone, two very large barns with stalls in one for one hundred head of cattle and the other of equal size, tool houses, carriage houses, ice houses, etc. The improvements on this farm cost over twenty thousand dollars. Stocked with a hundred and twenty-five cows, about a hundred head of young cattle, 30 or 40 mares and colts, and 1,500 sheep. All the desirable agricultural implements of the day. In the immediate neighborhood of stores, schoolhouses, post office, church, etc., etc. A good neighborhood and well settled. A very desirable property. I will sell this farm for $30 an acre, stock and tools at appraised value. The location for mill is one of the best in the state and would probably pay twice the interest of the whole investment. Cheese and the product of the farm will command larger prices than paid in this state as the sale will be on the Pacific Railroad. The terms will be liberal. Also, several cultivated farms of 160 acres some uncultivated of same size at $10 an acre. The country is perfectly healthy and very beautiful. All of these farms are situated within 48 hours ride of Syracuse. To persons of capital or those with small means desirous of going west, I offer superior inducements as the increase in value of this real estate for the next five years must be very large. H. 10 Ike, Casanova, Madison County, New York. I flew the air with the greatest of a daring young man on the side. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 18. Were you paying attention to that opening ad? I hope so, because it's relevant to today's material. 
Let me establish some connective tissue for that. Note that the ad was for cultivated farms in Iowa, and now listen to this, from History of Iowa by Dorothy Schweider, Professor of History, Iowa State University. Iowa, home for immigrants. While Iowans were debating the issues of women's suffrage in the post-Civil War period, the state itself was attracting many more people. Following the Civil War, Iowa's population continued to grow dramatically, from 674,913 people in 1860 to 1,194,020 in 1870. Moreover, the ethnic composition of Iowa's population also changed substantially. Before the Civil War, Iowa had attracted some foreign-born settlers, but the number remained small. After the Civil War, the number of immigrants increased. In 1869, the state encouraged immigration by printing a 96-page booklet entitled Iowa, the Home of Immigrants. The publication gave physical, social, educational, and political descriptions of Iowa. The legislature instructed that the booklet be published in English, German, Dutch, Swedish, and Danish. Hugh here. Note that list of languages. English, German, Dutch, Swedish, and Danish. Note also the name at the end of that advertisement. H. Ten Eyck. I've done quite a bit of digging, and given the information I've found, I can't say for sure, but I think that H. Ten Eyck was Henry Ten Eyck who was a really big deal, at least in the small town of Casanova, and his obituary made it to DeRyder, Buffalo, Utica, Lockport, Watertown, Baldwinsville, Syracuse, and, oh yeah, New York City. Now, go to the show notes and follow that link to the Wikipedia page about the Van Eycks, a rich, prominent Dutch family. Now, check this out. It's from the Library of Congress article on the Homestead Act. Signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln on May 20, 1862, the Homestead Act encouraged Western migration by providing settlers 160 acres of public land. In exchange, homesteaders paid a small filing fee and were required to complete five years of continuous residence before receiving ownership of the land. After six months of residency, homesteaders also had the option of purchasing the land from the government for $1.25 per acre. The Homestead Act led to the distribution of 80 million acres of public land by 1900. Hugh here. So, put it all together. You've got a local prominent Dutch guy advertising for plots of land in Iowa, some of which have acreage exactly matching the acreage specified in the Homestead Act. Now, I have no way of knowing that this Ten Eyck guy sent a lot of Dutch people out into Iowa, but it does seem likely. In any event, this, for me, is the sort of exciting find that brings history alive because it provides a local connection to grand, sweeping, national trends, like the trend of white people going west after the Civil War and establishing homesteads that further encroached upon Native American territories 
further exacerbated the situation between the U.S. military and the Native Americans and led to the final stages of the Native American genocide which had been going on for decades. Alright, so on to today's article, or I should say articles. Originally I was intending to just read one long collection of articles about the Johnson impeachment and all the machinations leading up to it, but the more I looked at that page, the more I realized I can't just read to you about the Johnson impeachment because there's so much on that page that ties into it that I have to read it all because it all gives you vital context. But before we dive into the heavy stuff on that page, let's start with something whimsical. This is from the Syracuse Daily Journal of Saturday evening, February 22, 1868. The announcement of the death of the celebrated Steam Man was premature. It was on exhibition at the Polytechnic in New York on Thursday night. It walks 20 miles an hour. Hugh here. Yeah, so as I've read newspapers from this time, I've noticed articles about this quote-unquote steam man. If you go to the show notes, you can see a picture that I stole from io9. This is from that article. In 1868, Zadot Dederick of Newark, New Jersey, built a robotic man wearing a top hat to pull carriages. His creation became known as the Newark Steam Man and its inventor hoped to build an army of steampunkish carriage drivers. All right, let's dive into the Johnson impeachment material on the same page. Remember, Johnson is doing everything in his power to get Secretary of War Stanton out of office. We're going to start with a little joke article. President Johnson is at least accomplishing one good... His disposition to take advantage of all the latest defects and quirks in the laws keeps Congress busy with corrections, so that by the time his presidential term expires, we may expect to find a comparatively complete and watertight code of national laws. Ha, nice. Now let's scroll down the column and get to the main article. The President's Machinations President Johnson, with a pertinacity that would honor the best cause in which a man could engage, continues his warfare against the loyal sentiment of the country. His capacity for mischievous inventions, which fail by reason of no fault of his, appears to expand with the desperateness of the situation in which he finds himself. A man of less boldness and perseverance would have been long since, rebuffed and cowed into submission by the defeat of one after another of his cherished projects. But this is not his composition. There is that in his makeup, rivaling the devices and ingenuity of Satan himself, that urges him on to new and more determined efforts in his course of wrongdoing and defiance of the sentiment of the mass of the people with every check and defeat he experiences. The record of his official exploits during the last 24 hours demonstrates fully the spirit that controls his action. The president, chafing under the defeat he met with in his personal contest with the general of the army, determined to execute a flank movement by which he might cripple and disable the general. He therefore, without authority of law, 
nominated Lieutenant General Sherman to a brevet generalship and established for him a new division with headquarters at Washington. This promotion, whose object was recognized and appreciated by Lieutenant General Sherman, was declined through the advice of the Senate and the sense of propriety of Sherman himself. The President, relinquishing none of his spite toward General Grant, now places the Lieutenant General in the same inimical category with him and includes both Grant and Sherman in the malignant warfare he is waging. The form of his last aggression is the nomination of Major General George H. Thomas to be Lieutenant General and Brevet General, thus seeking to elevate him above Sherman and crowd him into a collision with Grant. We believe the good sense of General Thomas is to be relied upon to defeat the machinations of Johnson, just as they were defeated by Sherman. Coincident with this movement by the President is another, which even more clearly is an attempt at usurpation. Mr. Johnson defies the law of Congress and again seeks to subvert it. He appoints to the War Department as Secretary ad interim a personal favorite, Adjutant General Lorenzo Thomas, and thus proposes to dispossess Secretary Stanton of the office. This proceeding was a surprise to the country and created great excitement at Washington. The first intimation of the proposed change was the appearance of Thomas at the War Office with a letter from the President as follows. Executive Mansion, Washington, D.C., February 21, 1868. Sir, by virtue of the power and authority vested in me as President by the Constitution and laws of the United States, you are hereby removed from office as Secretary of War, and your functions as such will terminate upon receipt of this communication. You will transfer to Brevet Major General Lorenzo Thomas, Adjutant General of the Army, who has this day been authorized as Secretary of War ad interim, all records, books, papers, and other public property now in your custody and charge. Respectfully yours, signed, Andrew Johnson, President. To the Honorable Edwin M. Stanton, Washington, D.C., a copy of this document was immediately transmitted to the Senate by Mr. Stanton, whereupon that body went into executive session, lasting seven hours, which was occupied by a discussion of the President's proceeding, resulting in the adoption of the following resolution submitted by Mr. Wilson. Whereas, the Senate received and considered a communication of the President stating that he had removed Edwin M. Stanton as Secretary of War and has designated the Adjutant General of the Army to act as Secretary of War ad interim, Therefore, resolved by the Senate of the United States that under the Constitution and laws of the United States, the President has no power to remove the Secretary of War and designate any other officer to perform the duties of that office. This resolution was agreed to without a division. The injunction of secrecy was removed from it, and copies of the resolution were ordered to be communicated to the President Secretary of War and Adjutant General Thomas. 
Secretary Stanton declined to surrender the War Department to Thomas and remained in personal charge during Friday night. He was waited upon by a committee of the Senate consisting of Senators Cameron, Chandler, Cattle, and Treyer, and informed that, pending any action, it was the desire of the Senate that he should retain the office and disregard any orders from the President to the contrary. The committee also waited upon General Grant and had an interview with him. The committee expressed themselves entirely satisfied with General Grant's position regarding this matter. Our telegrams this morning give some additional information regarding this highly interesting imbroglio. Secretary Stanton is determined to hold on. Adjutant General Thomas declares his intention to forcibly take possession. The Republican senators and representatives in Congress advise Stanton not to yield. The president gives the Herald's correspondent his reasons for his conduct. A warrant is issued from Judge Carter's court for Thomas's arrest. The public await further developments. Hugh here. So, yeah, like a lot of these articles, this one boils down to Johnson saying, I'm removing Secretary of War Stanton from office, and Congress saying, you can't do that! Now, oh, this is fantastic. Check out this condescending fluff piece written by none other than Elizabeth Cady Stanton, one of the leading names in the women's suffrage movement and printed in The Revolution, the leading women's suffrage newspaper of the time. If you want a little primer on Stanton and The Revolution, check out episode 3, Sisming Suffragettes. Anyway, here we go. A ladies canvas for president. How the ladies would canvas for the presidency if they had the gift of suffrage may be inferred from Mrs. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's last letter from Washington, which appears in this week's Revolution. She comments upon the various candidates for the presidency, and generally with an eye to those points in which they appeal most strongly to the feminine eye or thought. Thus, of General Grant, she says, The ladies say he has no small talk. The ladies have analyzed Chief Justice Chase and found he has a handsome head, gentlemanly deportment, imposing presence, a graceful daughter, but no heart. The women never could go to him with their sorrows. Senator Fessenden looked out of humor. But as he was seen to put his arm around Senator Ferkey, affectionately, the offense was condoned, and the waste places were made glad. Senator Wade needs a new set of teeth and a little polishing up generally. Senator Trumbull has an accomplished wife. Speaker Colfax is affable, polite, and not statuesque at his receptions. When Mrs. E.C.S. attended his reception, she was escorted by an able-bodied general, the finest-looking man present. Mr. Colfax is objected to because he has no wife, but it was hoped he would take counsel of Senator Wade, who has sound ideas on women, dress, and fashions. Mr. Sherman is tall and thin. Representative Jenkins has a large, round, benevolent face. 
This closes the catalog of personal charms, which are here put forth as a feeler for that presidential campaign when the ladies shall present their candidate on the sound platform of reconstruction in dress and manners. On the whole, Mrs. E.C.S. seems to favor Mr. Colfax, and she longs for the good time coming when high neck and long sleeves shall be the regulation uniform of the White House, and when women can wear an American dress and belong to the Coast Survey. Hugh here. Did you catch that bit about how the waist places, W-A-I-S-T places, were made glad? Does that mean what I think it means? I'm not sure whether to go, you or, yay, you go, girl, sex positivity. Anyway, again, skipping around on the page, now we're coming to a big point I want to make about the connection between this whole Grant, Johnson, Stanton, Thomas, Imbroglio, and Reconstruction. It all ties back to Reconstruction. Everything from the national to the local levels, it's all about Reconstruction, and that means it's all about race. Check this out. Senator Wilson has declared his intention of taking an early opportunity in the Senate to expose the outrages perpetrated in Alabama at the late election in the way of intimidating voters and defrauding them of their votes. The crime against the ballot box is the unpardonable sin in a republic and cannot be visited with too heavy denunciation or punishment. Hugh here. Now, this next article brings us much closer to the situation on the ground with Reconstruction. Washington. Further about the Alabama election, the persecution of unionists, perils of the polls, statements of leading union men, the oppressed freedmen, despair. Correspondence of the Syracuse Journal, Washington, D.C., February 19, 1868. How the Alabama Rebels Acted Several of the prominent Republicans of that state are now here, urging the adoption of a measure by which their constitution and representation will be recognized. Among these are Albert Griffin of Mobile, editor of The Nationalist, Major B.W. Norris, chairman of the state committee and representative-elect from the 2nd District, and Honorable J.C. Keffer, just elected commissioner of the State Industrial Bureau. Their account of the condition of affairs is extremely interesting, rather exciting, and apt to arouse anger. I don't know that it can be better described than to give the outlines of a conversation that occurred in my hearing in the rooms of the Congressional Republican Committee. A prominent Maryland radical was expressing his surprise at the failure in Alabama and seemed to doubt whether the Republicans used due efforts to get out their votes if they had them. Mr. Keffer is a man of about 40 years, slight and sinewy in frame, with a face intense, strong and clear in expression, and eyes that, when aroused, hold the listener firmly. His speech flamed out as he heard the Marylander remark, Why, Judge, how could we do better? Take Mobile, for instance, as proof of the means used. We have a Union League council there, containing nearly 700 white members. 
Every one of them was as anxious as myself to vote for the Constitution. Every man that was employed by others, mechanic, clerk, or laborer, was called up by their employers the night before the election, sir, and asked if they were going to vote next day. If they said yes, they were instantly discharged. Those that were not, who went to the polls, were instantly noticed, and before they could get back to their employment, a messenger had told their boss, and out of work they went. The same thing was done with the freedmen. How many men do you suppose could have courage to stand that? Such things are often done in the North, was the reply. Nothing I have ever seen there was a patch by the side of it, was the energetic response. The campaign of Harrison and Tyler was proscriptive enough, but it was freedom itself compared to our affairs. Why, sir, one cotton firm, employing twenty-odd cotton samplers and some sixty laborers, discharged everyone before noon of the fourth because they voted. Then again, every union man in business was spotted and his name published. I know men whose business fell off in one day fifty percent. A suffering wife and children is a bad balance against the franchise." But I don't understand how this could be so universal, said the judge. Capitalists could not certainly be able to lose what they must by such stagnation. They can live for a while. Those they oppress have nothing at all, was the reply. The southern rebels are desperate, more so even than they were when rebellion began. Then they don't need the labor just now so much as they will by and by. They hope then to have broken them in, nor was this all we had to endure. You have seen some ruffianism at Baltimore elections, but you have never seen it done legally, I reckon. The sheriffs in all our counties are errant rebels. General Pope refused to remove any of them, though he was implored to do so. I almost went on my knees to him, but it was of no avail. They were ordered to keep the peace and protect the Poles. What did they do? Summoned as a posse comitatus, the worst ruffians and bullies of the county, and swore them in. These fellows crowded round the window, and you had to pass between them to deposit your ballot. Fancy it, twenty to forty big burly ruffians. Nigger drivers, murderers, bullies, with their pantaloons in their boots their broad-rimmed and slouched hats cocked insolently on one side, their rebel gray coats, those they wore in the Confederate Army, sir, a bowie knife peeping out of their breast and a revolver on each hip. There they stood, you had to pass between them, while they cursed you, jostled you, shook their fists in your face, spit their tobacco juice all over you, told you that if you voted you had better get measured for a coffin or that you must leave the country. By God, judge, I had to pass through forty such fellows where I voted, and they threatened and hooted at me until I was out of hearing. General Hayden sat in his office coolly and said he could not interfere until actual violence occurred. That's the way we had to vote. Do you wonder that we did not poll at least 30,000 votes under such a system? Of course, the Maryland radical did not repeat his wonder, and our Alabama friend emphasized his remarks by saying that 
it was hell broke loose, and no mistake. There is a strenuous effort being made to get Bingham's bill reported. Some good men oppose it. There is a good deal of unnecessary mulishness, it seems to me, on these things. I heard it well stated in reply to an objection to the admission of Alabama because it was bad for the party that it was worse to have continual elections until sufficient votes were obtained. There is not the slightest doubt that, do the best we may under the circumstances, the vote will fall short from three to five thousand. It is also perfectly certain that on a fair and unresisted election we could poll over one hundred thousand votes. The Freedmen Despairing The Chronicle of this morning publishes a remarkable correspondence between Judge Kelly and a Reverend H. Ryan, pastor of the M.E. Church, Columbus, Mississippi, relating to emigration to Liberia. The following petition pathetically speaks for itself. Columbus, Mississippi, January 28, 1868. To the Honorable Senate and the House of Representatives of the United States. The undersigned citizens of the state of Mississippi humbly entreat your favorable consideration to our petition. We want to go to Liberia. We want to go because we see no prospect of success here. The white people have too much the advantage of us. They have all the land, all the money, and all the education. These things might soon be remedied if there was plenty of work for us to do and the people were disposed to favor us, but there are so many of us that we cannot all get work to do unless we will work for almost nothing. Many have to beg the privilege to work for their victuals and clothes today. Besides this, many of the people are disposed to reduce us as low as possible and get our work for as nearly nothing as possible. For proof of these statements, we need only refer you to the well-known facts of the last three years. Great numbers of the planters have refused the laborers their pay altogether. More than this, the people generally have labored to prevent the education of our children. Few planters will allow us a teacher of our choice on their plantations, and those who teach us in the cities are scorned and hated. These things being so, how can we hope to secure homes of our own, or even to provide for our children? Much less can we hope to give them that education which is necessary to fit them for usefulness in life. How can we hope that our children will be any better off than we are if they grow up as they are growing up now? If we could get to Liberia, we probably could do better for ourselves and vastly better for our children, but we have no money and cannot go without help. We suppose, from all we can learn, it will require about $100 apiece to send us there. Therefore, we humbly pray and beseech your honorable ladies to look favorably upon our petition and either send us to the home of our fathers yourselves, or enable the American Colonization Society to do so, and for your prosperity and happiness we will ever pray. Over three thousand of us are waiting to hear what action will be taken in this matter. The nature of Judge Kelly's response, the petition was forwarded to him, can be easily understood. He comments forcibly upon the folly and cruelty of the employing class in thus persecuting the labor of the land, and thus advises forbearance.
Circumstances bear heavily upon your race at this time, but you must not despond. America is a better and a broader land than Africa, and causes are at work which will, in a little while, relieve you from the agonies you are called to endure for the present. These are the dark hours that precede a glorious dawn. They are dark, very dark, but the coming day will be one of perfect brightness. Cheer and sustain your people. Encourage those who can to procure land. Write to General Howard, Commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau, if you have not already done so, and learn what provision, of which any of your class can avail themselves, is made by the Homestead Law. The southern states, when so reconstructed as to be accepted by Congress, will give you equality before the law, and will each provide a system of education to the advantages of which all will have the right. I do not wonder at your depression, at your willingness to flee from the crushing ills you are called to endure, but I think it would be as unwise for you to go to the prosperous young republic now rising on the coast of Africa as it would for our impoverished government to apply from half a million to a million of dollars, for it would cost that sum, to the exportation of laborers whose sweat is needed on her unoccupied land. Mr. Ryan, by whom the petition was sent, is a man of much natural ability, Having met him while south last summer, I can speak advisedly. He was a slave until the Red River expedition, when he left his master and went with our army to New Orleans. It is rather a pitiable commentary on our boasted freedom when 3,000 men petition Congress to give them the means by which they can have homes at which they really want to stay because they are so oppressed. The colonization virus is beginning to circulate again. A Maryland member has offered resolutions directing the mustering out of our Negro regiments and their reformation on condition that the soldiers agree to emigrate to Liberia when their term of service expires. Thinon. Hugh here. Skipping around on the page again, we find three more articles about slavery in different forms. Among the passengers on the Morrow Castle, which arrived at New York last Friday, were three Negroes. Their story is a curious one. When quite young, they were brought from Africa and sold as slaves in Cuba. Thirty years of dreary and apparently interminable drudgery had been their lot when a month ago they clubbed together the twenty dollars requisite to buy a ticket in a lottery. Fortune smiled on them, and they drew a prize of $30,000. They at once purchased their freedom, and, impelled by an irresistible longing to return to their home, took passage to New York and started on Saturday for Africa by way of Liverpool in the English mail steamer. The last American slave set free, so far as reported, is a girl who was returned to her father, Henry E. Morris, a colored man, at Wilmington, Delaware, a few days since. She was seized by force in 1862, when only ten years old, and has been kept under pretended indentures of apprenticeship ever since. Her labor or other value would not have been available for many years, and the only motive on the part of her master seems to have been the itching to enslave somebody— 
The first joyful cry of the child when released was, Now I shall get to school and learn to read and write. It is a curious item in the colonial history of this country that, both in New England and farther south, white men were occasionally sold into servitude to defray the expense of bringing them over from England. The chivalry of Virginia, says that New York Independent, are just now aghast at a recent discovery that the ancestor of Henry A. Wise of Virginia was sold, in this way, for 100 pounds of tobacco to pay his passage money to America, the identical bill of sale being still preserved in a private library at Washington. Hugh here. Now we come to an article that illustrates the intersection between state and national politics. There is a spirited contest for the location of the Democratic National Convention. Johnson's friends are for New York, and Pendleton's for Cincinnati. The National Committee decide the question today. Hugh here. At the time, Pendleton, along with the incumbent Johnson, was a contender for Democratic presidential candidate. Cincinnati was Pendleton's home turf. Note how the newspaper writer frames the struggle for the location of the DNC. It's like a sports event. Now, here's a second article involving the intersection of state and national politics. Remember, the Copperheads were Northerners who were sympathetic to the South, and Vallandigham was King Shit Copperhead. Vallandigham is about to take the stump for the Democratic ticket in New Hampshire. He has clearly determined to hold the Copperheads to their record and will tolerate nothing like an attempt to prove that they are in favor of the government which their friends, the rebels, fought so long to destroy. Hugh here. Now we come to another great example of how the newspapers of the time enhanced the optics of the connections between the struggle between Johnson and Congress on the one hand and all levels of politics on the other. Here, we're talking about the connection between national and local politics. Remember, this newspaper came out on Saturday, February 22nd, 1868. Just that previous Tuesday, Syracuse had had its mayoral election. Notorious Copperhead John A. Green had lost by only 123 votes, so you better believe that contest and the national contest coming up in November, not to mention the impending impeachment, were very connected in people's minds. Long story short, what you're about to hear is, rah, 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 we're Republicans. We beat the Democrats in Syracuse. We're going to get Johnson impeached, and we're going to beat the Democrats in November. Here's the article. Our recent election. The comments of the Republican journals of the country in celebration of the grand victory of the Unionists of Syracuse are so numerous and voluminous that we are compelled to relinquish our purpose of republishing them. We shall, therefore, reproduce only such of the articles on this subject as possess special interest. The Philadelphia Press says... The Republican victory in Syracuse, New York, on Tuesday was very complete and significant. The issue was purely national, 
and both sides accepted it as such, the Republicans nominating for mayor one of the Republican Grant delegates to the Chicago Convention, and the Copperheads their great chief, John A. Green, the Vallandigham of the place. The vote was very large, the discussion of the whole subject of Reconstruction very full, and the exertions of both sides unprecedented. The result is that Mr. Green got a very black eye. The Albany Journal, in its political news column, perpetrates several good things, as follows. The Syracuse Courier says that General Green was defeated in consequence of personal causes, if the reason for his defeat is not found in his obnoxious principles, but his personal unpopularity, so much the worse for Green and his verdant friends. The Syracusans have very suddenly brought to repudiation and bankruptcy a very pretentious and crafty act of political tinkers, the coppersmiths who propose to copperbottom the good old ship union. The master of the art in this state finds there is no business for his craft. The Democrats of Utica were so sure of the election of John A. Green, Jr., that they came out with a brass band preparatory for a rejoicing, but the music of the telegraph silenced their strains. The Democrats sought to cover their retreat from the battlefield which witnessed the overthrow of their chosen leader of Syracuse by raising a dust about an alleged victory in the small village of Watertown, but even that refuge is denied them. Watertown elected a Republican supervisor, as usual, with nearly the entire balance of the ticket, including the principal officers. The Utica Herald demonstrates how ungenerous the Democratic press is toward its fallen champion. The Albany Argus and the Utica Observer turn their backs on the defeated Copperhead candidate for mayor of Syracuse. Both intimate that he was defeated on personal grounds, that is to say that he was unpopular and failed to get his party vote. This is unfair treatment of a champion who has done more work for the party than any other man in Onondaga County. Any odium that has been fastened upon General Green has been due to the standard he bore. The canvas brought out the full strength of both parties, and Green went down fighting gallantly. It is a poor recognition for such service as he has rendered for the party organs to sneer at the result as due to personal causes. Hugh here. If you want to know more about the Syracuse mayoral election of 1868, sorry, I mean, I've only done several hundred hours of research on that subject and devoted episodes 5 through 12 of this podcast to it, so, eh, you're out of luck. Now we come to the broader point I want to illustrate, the way race is baked into everything. Listen to these three short articles about the situation with the Native American tribes in the West. Among the Indian tribes mostly to be dreaded when the winter is over are the Brule and Ogallala Sioux, Northern Cheyennes, Arapahoes, Bloods, Gros Ventres, Blackfeet, Kootenays, Piogans, Flatheads, Assiniboines, Ariscarees, Mandanes, Miniconjus, Wichitas, Apaches, Kiowas, Comanches, and Creeks. 
But the Cheyennes and Sioux are by far the most formidable. About the middle of April, we may look out for the bloodiest Indian war ever known in the West. The Cheyenne Star is informed that all the soldiers that can be spared will be sent to the vicinity of Fort Philip Kearney to operate against Red Cloud and his band this coming spring. General Anger and staff will accompany the train for the purpose of reconciliation, if possible. The Cheyenne papers are agitating the question of a water supply for that city. It is proposed to dam Crow Creek near the fort and thus form a reservoir. Hugh here. Do you see the connections? Do you see that person in Syracuse in 1868 opening up a newspaper and seeing an advertisement from a Dutch real estate agent in Casanova? Do you see how that person and that newspaper were part of a system that resulted in the displacement and death of Native Americans in the West? And beyond that, do you see why I found myself thinking, I have to read all these articles because without them you don't get the whole context? Just to recap, right next to the articles on the Johnson-Stanton-Grant-Thomas imbroglio that led to impeachment, you've got articles about the recent Republican victory in the Syracuse mayoral election. The Democratic candidate, the most notorious copperhead in the Northeast, lost by only 123 votes. Next to that, you've got a long article about the horrible state of affairs in the South where both blacks and whites are being terrorized in an effort to scuttle Reconstruction efforts. Next to that, you've got all those articles about state and national politics with Vallandigham and the Democratic National Convention, yada, yada, yada. Next to those, you've got articles sympathetic to all different sorts of slaves. And what else do you have right next to all these quote-unquote, liberal notions. Dry articles about how the military is being sent to deal with Indian attacks. Even the most liberal people just did not give a fuck about the plight of Native Americans. For me, this illustrates the risk of oversimplifying one's view of that time. Everything is relative. Even the most liberal people were steeped in a zeitgeist of racial superiority. This is why I'm so careful to qualify any generalization such as the Democrats then were like the Republicans now and vice versa. Any such generalization can never be more than a crude tool to begin the process of understanding. Well, that's it for now. Next time, we'll continue with the great imbroglio between Congress and Johnson and Stanton and Grant and Thomas and yada and yada and yada and yada. Until then, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he's stolen away. 